Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, this episode should happen a long time ago, but I am glad it has happened now from the band Orchid, from the band Panthers, from the band Violent Bullshit, from the band Cheeseburger, from there's a lot from podcasts, a comedian, my buddy, my pal, the amazing Jason Green. More on that in one second. But first, this is a good one. Trust me, this is a good one. We're going to connect Hatebreed to LCD Sound System by the time this is all over through Jason. That's why we do this thing. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and normally guest booker extraordinaire, but I could book this one by myself. Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find, oh, he also does an Instagram page and a Facebook page for Turned Out of Punk as well. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Left for Damien. If you want to support the show, tell all your friends about it. Uh, if you want to pick up a t shirt, please head over to turnedoutapunk.com and thank you to everyone who does pick up those shirts. Very much appreciated. Uh, and uh, you can also, uh, yeah, just listening. That supports the show. I play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. We're going to be going on tour on the East Coast of the United States into Europe. And then we're going to do a Southwest tour, I believe, a little bit later. No, I, I know. I'm saying I don't I believe. I know we're doing one. You can find out more information about that in upcoming Fucked Up records over at fuckedup.cc. And uh, pick up tickets for those shows. Come say hi. I'm going to be there. I, I, I will be there with bells on and I will be, will be looking very forward to meeting people and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to go on tour again. Anyway, find out more information over at fuckedup.cc. All right. On to today's show today on the show, as I said off the top, this is someone who should have been on a very long time ago. Jason Green is of course a legendary vocalist in Orchid, also from Panthers, Violent Bullshit, Cheeseburger, all sorts of stuff. Does a fantastic podcast called 24 Hour Video Podcast. Is a comedian, is kind of the ideal guest for this podcast and has been a friend for a very long time. I remember first meeting Jason and Panthers when Fucked Up was just starting to kind of poke our head out into the world and see what it was out there. And they were always so awesome. And some of my favorite memories were hanging out with Jason and just talking punk and hardcore and, you know, just, just doing exactly what you're going to hear us do here on this podcast. Uh, you can find out more information about Jason over at jasongreen.org. And if you are not familiar with his bands, check them all out. Orchid of course are, legends and we we talk about this in a second but innovators of genres and whatnot but don't sleep on panthers or any of his other bands violent bullshit or anything either because they are all worth your time uh that is it uh sit back relax and enjoy jason green on turned out of punk Jason, thank you for coming on the show. No, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. This is a uh, a big thrill for me because I've wanted to do this for a very long time. Oh, good. Well, I've uh, I'm a, I'm a fan of the podcast, and I wanted to ask you to have me on the show, but I was. You know. Well, oh, I've wanted to have you and Jeff on because, like, not only are you a fellow podcaster, yeah, a comedian, yeah, a DJ, uh huh, 
but you are a, a hardcore innovator of not one, <laughs> but two hardcore subgenres. Really? Yeah. What's the second one? What's I, the first one? I think you're reluctant to claim both. <laughs> Before we go any further, uh, your your influence on the genre that is now classified as screamo, uh, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the genre that I became part of, hipster hardcore. With oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I never. Uh, I guess. Yeah, I didn't ever think of us as hipster hardcore. Uh, nor did many people who listen to us. <laughs> No, nor did many people that listen to fucked up. Yeah. Unless they're trying to put us down. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like it, it definitely we'll get to all that. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh yeah. but I gotta start it off the way they all start off, which is Jason, how'd you get into punk? Uh you know, it's so I've been listening to your podcast and I know that this is the question that comes up, and I was sort of thinking about it. And it's it's difficult. I it much like Elgin James. <laughs> The only thing we have in common, fellow is we, Connecticut hardcore legend, we both grew up in a very rural area of Connecticut. Um, I grew up in a town called Cheshire, Connecticut, which is kind of near New Haven, which is where the Anthrax Club was. Um, and there was no punks in my town, really at all. Uh, and I grew up with Jeff Garlock, who you talked about, uh, who became the bass player in Orchid and went on to do a lot of other great stuff. We were childhood friends, so I think the. F- it's like the the first main thing was I had a cousin who was kicked out of his house and he lived in our attic and he was a metalhead and he would give me tapes that he deemed, I'm not going to use the word, I'm going to say wimpy. Yeah, we, I, we can imagine what yeah. word he was using. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. So it was like Faster Pussycat, Def Leppard, Poison, and I loved that stuff. Yeah. And I was uh, in elementary school when I was getting these. And then I was, so I was very intrigued about the stuff he would not give me. So... Uh, and, and he was, while he was kind of a wild guy, he was very protective of the stuff that like, he wouldn't, he's like, you cannot listen to this. So it'd be like Slayer. And the big one weirdly was the mentors. He had a mentors tape. Oh, cause they kind of, they were on metal blade, right? For, they were on metal blade yeah. and he had, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to remember the name of the album, but it was a white cover. They're all wearing the hoods. And what? I didn't even listen to it. Mm-hmm. All I could do to get away with was reading the lyric sheet, which of course is pretty terrifying. Ninety percent of the whole experience. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a, that's a Mystic record, isn't that the one with them with all the hoods on? Isn't that the one that of the early stuff that they reissued? I don't know. I have no clue. Okay. I all I do, I, I just remember an image of it. And I remember reading the lyrics. Um, I never listened to it. But so that. That started setting me off in a direction of being interested in kind of outsider music, which I think is obviously punk adjacent. Mm-hmm. Like, so you get interested in that stuff, and and I don't think it's so far off, like far afield from punk. But I still had no, I, I'd never, I had not encountered punk music or anything at that point. But I was friends with Jeff, and Jeff and I would, every Saturday night, I would spend the night at his house. We'd uh, watch Headbangers Ball, and he would record it. He was way more into the details of things. I was into just things that I thought were cool. I didn't really pay attention. <laughs> yeah. But Jeff really did. And so he, I remember, I think it was, he. We, we liked, the Quicksand had come out. And we liked this Quicksand song. It was on 120 Minutes or Headbangers Ball or whatever. And then Jeff got a magazine. It was an interview with Walter Schriffles. Is that how you say his last name? Schriffles? Schriffles? Yeah. Uh, to say that I've never actually asked him, so I can be totally. I mean, I, I, I love him. So Walter, it was an interview with Walter, and then so they talked about the other bands he was in, Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, etc. So then we went on a tear at our local record store, buying all the early Rev stuff on cassette. But we had no sense that there was like a 
scene where you could go see it. Mm-hmm. And Rev had moved by that point, right? California? Yeah, it must yeah, be. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But we were this is a this is a record store in Waterbury, Connecticut called Phoenix Records that we used to um, go to all the time. So we loved all that. We were really getting into all the early Rev releases, but didn't know it was a scene. Um and then I had like there was a senior when I was a freshman and I was obsessed with her. She had no idea it existed, but she would wear t-shirts and I would buy the records. So <laughs> she had like a this is not a Fugazi t-shirt, and I bought the repeater cassette. Listen to it while I was mowing the lawn. But my, you know, that's, that's kind of how I got into it. And like, I had an older sister, but she wasn't into punk. She was into like the Indigo Girls and stuff. Mm-hmm. She's great. But mm-hmm. so I didn't have, and there was no one in my town really. So that's kind of how we got into it. And then I happened onto a punk show for the first time, sort of randomly. And I was like, oh, this is like a, there are d- people are doing this still. Like, I just thought it was like a, historical thing or so, something. Yeah, like you weren't aware of that time. Because like information was so hard to come by that yeah. Fugazi had any connection to what this Rev stuff that you're also getting into kind yeah. of... No, I had no idea. Yeah. But I did... I, I got Minor Threat because of Fugazi. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking Minor Threat was... I was like, this is too, this is too much. <laughs> but of course, it became like my favorite band of all time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was, I was also doing a lot of... <laughs> this is... This is going to gain me a lot of fans. I was doing a lot of theater. Yeah, very into theater, musical theater. We all come out of it. <laughs> Did you do it? No. Well, yeah, I was. I was the cowardly lion in our school play. Oh, you good. know, and yeah. and uh, Stephen Page was just on from the Bare Naked Ladies, and you and Peach is actually used to do plays with Stephen Page. Get out of here! Back when they were kids. That's too funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was doing. So I was doing. I was really into doing Shakespeare. So we did Shakespeare. Uh, I was doing a Shakespeare play called Taming of the Shrew, and there's a, a woman in the play. She was a 16 yeah <laughs> and i think i was 13 or 14 and i was in love with her and she was dating the drummer of a popular local ska band called jc super ska jc super ska they, they didn't put anything out they did oh they did yeah jesus christ super ska <laughs> that's what it is <laughs> i didn't put it together yes. now. that's yeah. awesome yeah and she took me to one of their shows and it was at a club called the tune-in in new haven which is an all-ages club Do you know infamous it? club absolutely yeah. Spent a lot of time there, but that was my first time there, and I think there was a bunch of ska bands, maybe Skavuvi and the Epitones played, some other ska bands, and um, I think, I'm sure the Pissed played, which was a Whoa, local... that's fucking awesome! You know the Pissed. Okay. They're amazing! Yeah, they were great. Yeah. And I think, again, my memory is mushy, but I think Brutally Familiar also played. Oh, that's wicked! I was going to ask you about them. So, those were the first two kind of like punk bands I saw. Um, and then I also now knew about this place I could go. And then that's how I kind of, and then it quickly went into the kind of the hardcore scene after that. So was there a division between like brutally, brutally familiar? Like pissed is obviously sounds a little more punk than brutally familiar. Yeah. They did brutally familiar. just sounds like a raging hardcore band to me. Were they connected all to like the more kind of like, you know, I don't know, the youth crew stuff that would also be kind of, you know, I, it's. I'm going to give you my perspective of it at the time, which was like, as a person who was not very tapped into the scene at first, they seemed separate. Yeah. Um, they were older guys. Uh, the pit, both pissed and brutally familiar were kind of older guys and they weren't really playing the hardcore shows. I went to, mm-hmm. I saw them mostly exclusively at like ska punk shows, both of the bands. Um, and then I never saw, like after, a certain point never saw them again because they never they didn't really play the hardcore shows I was going to. I think Piss might move, right? 
Maybe. Nothing, but I don't know. Brutally familiar. I like. I can't imagine them going over well at a Scott show. I mean, it was such a it was such a mishmash, and it was all like teenage kids, you yeah. know. And and I so I think everybody was kind of into whatever. I, you know what? I honestly think Bouncing Souls maybe played that show too. Bouncing Souls was one of the first punk bands I saw ever too. Oh wow! Would that have been in the? Uh, had they already kind of found the sound, or is that when they were still kind of like? I think they found the sound. I think it was that because uh, I remember the first Bouncing Souls record I got was the. One Maniacal Laughter. It has the yellow cover. Oh, the one just the, before that. Uh, these the, are the 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 good, the bad, the are my now? favorite eighties movies. movies. Yeah, <laughs> that's the tour I think they're on. Yeah. Okay. So, it's funny how divided things were. You know, you think about these bands that sound kind of the same. You mm. know, and like like now it all fits together. You could see these bands playing mm. together a lot more now. Mm. Or maybe it's changed again. But a few years ago, you could see all these bands playing together. But at that point, like. If you dress differently, even if you're playing the same sort of like raging type of music, it was like completely different scenes. Yeah, for sure. And, and Connecticut was very specific about that stuff. And the more I got into the hardcore scene, the more you started, like there was anything outside of that purview was like not acceptable. Yeah. But at the beginning, everything was fine because you didn't, I mean, I was, I thought I was straight edge and I was smoking cigarettes. Like I didn't know what the <laughs> fuck was going on. I was just like happy to be around people that were into that stuff. Yeah. It's amazing when you're first putting it all together. Yeah. You got to make your own rules. It's a mess. None of this stuff applies. Yeah. And then it comes back that way when you get, when you hit 40, <laughs> you don't, you don't care about the rules anymore. No, that's true. In a different way. Though. In a different, In a different way. way. Yeah. You're not as much of sponge wanting to learn it. Though. No, no. And you're desperate to like get it right. Yeah. You know? And you never do. No. Yeah. No. And especially then. Cause like, once again, like. There was no Revelation book. There's no history no. of DC Punk book. No. Like, you're putting this stuff together by oral history. Like, we were talking before about, you know, who may or may not be the the stage diver on the back of the uh, Negro FX record. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah, or was yeah. the last, no, it's the D um, DYS. DYS record. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, this is just sort of oral history that has been passed down. Yeah. And I, so much of when I was thinking about, doing this podcast with you and I was thinking about my time in Connecticut and like the hardcore scene there. And I was questioning my own memory about how much of the, how many of the stories were, was I actually there for that? Or did yeah. I hear about it? Yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, or the story did I hear about, is that completely made up? You know, it's yeah, it's, it's funny. Growing up here, uh, Connecticut was always like the, the legendarily hard scene, <laughs> you know, like people, there's a rumor uh, that I was actually thinking about today. Hammer dances. It's like, uh, oh, they dance with hammers in Connecticut. Yeah. Is that true? I mean, <laughs> you know, it, I think back on my time in the Connecticut hardcore scene, and as a grown-up man, I am shocked yeah. that I went to these shows. <laughs> I would never do it now. Um, and when I got to college, I went out to a show, and there was no fights. And I was like, what? I honestly thought every time you went somewhere there was a fight would happen yeah because of what it was like in the connecticut hardcore scene um hammer dances i've seen people fight with hammers i've never <laughs> known people just dance around the pit with hammers <laughs> we are like people just be like okay let's make this fucking hard like you know i've heard about chains in the pit obviously yeah i've not you know i've seen people fight with all manner of hardcore weaponry but i've not seen it used as just like a uh, performative material it's it's possible. <laughs> I've never. I think I've seen basically every hate breed show from like 1994 to 1997. So I I 
I would think if there were hammer dances, it would have happened there. Well, this is the, that, exactly. This is the oral history that was being, you know, like there's no, and it's not like you would print this stuff in a fanzine either. No. Like you wouldn't dare repeat these sort of rumors. So it would just be like broken telephone yeah. up to Toronto. Well, I mean, I, you know, this happens all the, I, I remember when I was first getting into aggressive music or whatever, I was really obsessed with Pantera with that, that the vulgar display record I was, I loved. I actually shoplifted it because my mom would not buy it for me because I wanted it so badly. And I got tickets to see them play at a small club in Connecticut. And there was these older metalhead guys who were, I I mean, I think if you grew up in the 90s, the metalhead guys were the scare. They're the scariest people. Yeah. There was, always, there, was a, there was like a real, like hardcore bands would wind up playing metal shows and metal yeah. bands would play hardcore shows. And yeah. those two scenes just could not fucking get along. No. and And, you know, it was like... I think in both scenes, people grew up a little hard, but like even in art, it was like the, the kids who were metalheads, like, you know, the story, like they had no parents there, like, you know, but so there's one guy, his name was uh, Seneca Larson, who still haunts my dreams to this day, but he found out I got tickets to see Pantera and he said, uh, he's like, he's like, Hey green, you're going to see Pantera. And I was like, yeah, and he's like, better bring your fucking football pads. And I didn't go to the show cause I was so scared. <laughs> Is that, I was going to ask you cause like. You know, like obviously Hatebreed comes and Connecticut's like like they're, they're they're the champion band, but like prior to Hatebreed, were there like hard hardcore bands, like tough hardcore yeah, bands? Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean you know, my my involvement in the Connecticut hardcore scene was very it corresponded with Hatebreeds, yeah. basically. Jamie, the singer of Hatebreed I don't know how much explaining you need to do on this show. No, not too much. He's, okay. he's got he's got two episodes, I believe. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff, so but. so Jamie um, from Hatebreed was he booked essentially every show I saw that wasn't at the tune in, and he has amazing taste. Like I think that's the thing that people like just assume that he's only into stuff that sounds like Hatebreed, but like yeah. he was putting on power violence bands back then, and like you know like yeah, <laughs> well Vorhees, he put on the Vorhees. Yeah, I mean yes and no. He would also, every show had like 12 bands on it. Yeah. And it was like every local band played constantly. You know, it's like he was just, if there was a band coming through, he'd scoop up every local band and throw them on, you know. And yes, the thing is, I am so grateful. Like all of my great memories of shows are basically linked to, to Jamie. Uh, but yeah, there was hard bands before. Um, uh, it's the guy, now I'm blanking and this is so embarrassing. It's the guys who were, they ended up doing Death Threat, the not, the not. No, yeah, the Connecticut Death Threat. The Connecticut Death Threat. Before that, they were in a band. Oh, my God. I'm blanking. There, we, was, there was hard there was hard bands. Is Reason before. Enough? They're not. Reason Enough is from, yeah. Connecticut. And then there's, um, well, 2 by 4 would have been after, right? 2 by 4 was around the same time, yeah. They yeah. were like, they were like, yeah, they were fucking scary. I now. love that. Headlock of Hate. You uh, are in a headlock of hate. You yeah, are. that band. And also, it was they were not popular. But everyone was like so afraid of them <laughs> that people were like, we're singing along, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Bridgeport. That's a scary town. You know, all those guys are from Bridgeport. Um, yeah, I recently got <laughs> tattooed by a guy who's from Bridgeport, Connecticut. He was friends with the two by four guys. And I brought it up and he's like, he's like oh yeah, he's like, those guys, it's like, yeah, they always, they always had guns on them. And I was like, they did? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they, those guys were around the same time. I think there was like, there was something and Despair, yeah. who was not, they weren't like a tough guy band, but they were like kind of scary, aggressive in a way that a lot of stuff wasn't. 
Um, well, Scott's still like one of the greatest vocalists ever. Yeah, I mean that that band was that band had an aura around them. They were weird because they like, and I think Scott is still kind of this guy. Um, but they're like a weird band that bridged like the chokehold, you know, more ebullition leaning side of of hardcore, um, and and like the tough guy. Yeah, you know, side of things. Not I mean, that Jamie loved Chokehold too, but yeah, I mean, I can see all that looking back, yeah. and, and definitely Chokehold was a band that crossed into that scene because they were had they were like a chugga kind yeah. of heavy band, um, but their politics were a little bit different than yeah. some of the other guys. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I can see all that stuff looking back, but at the time, it's so insular, and you don't really have the the context to kind of parse all the different subgenres out it's just like whoever's around well the subgenre that you found yourself in is the same subgenre that i found myself in which is one of the greatest subgenres and that's the youth crew revival yeah yeah of the late 90s yes which connecticut it's almost like it's connecticut was the zeitgeist scene like when you think about like the pissed hate breed later the connection with orchid obviously when you know your your connection to it and then jeff being in the band yeah um you know um like Right Brigade and all these sorts of things. Like it really is like a lot of sounds that got taken up by the, like the the scenes internationally and things like that. Start in Connecticut. Yeah, I mean, well, I, you know, Orchid did not start in Connecticut, but we were from Connecticut. I give uh, it to Connecticut a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, there's. I mean, hate hate breed. Definitely, that's. I think, you know, hands down, you, you can't name a band from Connecticut. That's. I mean, you know, Youth of Today. Do you remember when we went and saw Hatebreed at South by yes. Southwest? I think about this constantly. One of the best shows I've ever fucking seen. He came, they came out to the Rocky thing. <laughs> and it was sponsored by Monster Energy Drink. I was so excited about it. I mean, I hadn't seen them in forever. You know, I still... It's it's hard to tell if you're like... What your just fond memories of being a kid are and what's... But I honestly feel like Hatebreed is just like a legit, very great band. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Oh, definitely. Um... And I still listen to that horribly recorded demo on the reg. Well, that demo, like, I remember that coming out, and this is obviously, like, the internet existed, but I was not really on it at this point, unless I was at school. So, uh, I remember just you'd hear about the Hatebreed demo, and then the Snapcase guys were selling it on their merch table at the Warp Tour, and I bought a copy of it, uh, like the Smorgasbord reissue when it came out. Yeah. And uh, it was just like, it sounded, like, it sounds so different. And it's amazing because now it's just such a pervasive influence on everything that came after it. Yeah. But at the time, there was nothing that was kind of filling that void. No, it's true. And I, like, I think it got a lot of people into certain kinds of death metal that they didn't know. Like, obviously, Obituary, mm. um, Entombed. These are all big influences on Jamie's songwriting. And so then you like, you know, that that opened up that world. And then there was a lot of there was a lot of death metal-y hardcore bands in Connecticut that played shows too. So that was like that was the metal subgenre that did kind of fit in yeah. with like the hardcore stuff. Well, I think Hatebreed did a lot of and maybe it was like this in Connecticut already because Jamie's doing the shows, but like <clears throat> you'd you'd go and see a Hatebreed show and you'd have to sit through a bunch of metal bands to get to Hatebreed. Which it was, as, yeah, I, it was I, always like it was like Tyrant Trooper. <laughs> Do you remember them? No, I don't think they made the one here. Okay, there is a band called Tyrant Trooper. They all looked like. I mean, the thing is, when you're a kid, you think everyone's like thirty. Yeah, they were probably like twenty or something, but they were giant muscle men, and they did not wear shirts, and they all played those guitars that didn't have a headstock, 
You know, yeah. like those little square <laughs> They played so many hate breed shows. 25 to Life, basically every hate breed show. Um, Marauder, almost all the time. Uh, Blood for Blood, less because of a major beef. But yeah, it was it was there. You, there was you, you didn't go to a show where there was less than six bands. Yeah, when Hatebreed would come here, like you get to the show, you'd have to sit through all these Toronto bands, and I had a very particular taste at that sure. point in, in the hardcore yeah. I liked. So I had to sit through a bunch of bands I was not necessarily a fan of, a bunch of metal bands, and then it would be like, oh, Hatebreed didn't get across the border <laughs> you just like go <laughs> home at the end of the night You're like fuck i wasted the whole time like, now they would their shows were always because i mean i you know the my most memorable hatebreed show was um I, just, I love this is like a hatebreed podcast my most memorable hatebreed show was at a place called the sports palace in new britain which was an infamous venue um it was an indoor soccer arena yeah. in new britain which is a new britain is a terrifying town hey, uh, connecticut seems to have like Towns that are very prosperous, you know, and yeah. like there's that stereotype of Connecticut. Yeah, of course, like Greenwich. And yeah. those. We, we there was one show booked at a Greenwich Youth Center. Never again. It got <laughs> destroyed, <laughs> destroyed. But yeah, so like yeah, the Greenwich where it's very rich people. There's towns where there's rich and poor together, and then there's towns that's just poor, 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 poor. poor. Yeah, yeah. Um, like New Haven, it's got Yale, and then it's just like a murder nightmare yeah. outside of it, basically. Yeah. Um, and New Britain is one of those places. They all used to be prosperous kind of manufacturing towns, Waterbury. Um, and then all that stuff went away. And then, you know, but so this was an indoor soccer arena and it was, I, I, you know, again, my brain might get some of this wrong and I'm sure Jeff Garlock will m message me right away with the details. Well, that's but, why he comes on second to kind of back clean up. On he'd be like, <laughs> Oh, Jay doesn't know what the fuck he's saying. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was, I think it was Hatebreed earth crisis. I think it was blood for blood marauder. And then Jeff's band Switch Dance played also, which was uh, his first band that he was in. Who um, are sick? <laughs> <laughs> they are fucking. They awesome. are. They. They're. They're. Yeah. They're. I his mean, vocals are amazing. Yeah, he sounds like Paul Bearer. Yeah, he's got like the hardest voice. Yeah, and he was like this tiny little guy. Um, I was basically their roadie. I would just travel with them, even though they had a song about. He wrote a song about hating me at one point because we had a falling out, but I would still sing along because I was so supportive. <laughs> and that becomes uh, your anthem after a certain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, there was a, so they did a there was a that hatebreed show. There was the Boston crew came down and it was a massive riot fight with people getting hit in the head with mad balls like the cue ball in a sock. And, you know. I was basically just like away from it, but it was a huge, like, it was just like this mass of people, huge fight. It gunshots in the air, gets pushed outside, more gunshots in the air. It gets broken up. Show continues. <laughs> did cops show up or no one bothers calling the cops? Cops did not show up. Nothing. I was though. And I think, again, I think about it now. I'm like, I cannot. And all of us were like, oh, well, you know, we got to see Earth Crisis. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I mean, it, but he, they, so the point of that story, I guess, was to say that they did play, they played with a lot of like the hardcore bands you would think they would play with. And it wasn't always, they didn't, there wasn't a ton of like metal bands playing with them. I guess the it's later. It, yeah, like, it was later. Kind of yeah. Period. Once he started doing, like once they started getting really huge, that was the milieu that they operated. Even in. like there was that weird period where after Satisfaction comes out, where everyone's kind of like, well, this band's going to be the biggest band. Yeah. Like it was just people just kind of like, but they hadn't gotten there yet. I remember seeing them. <clears throat> oh God, they were with some like progressive Montreal metal band. 
mm-hmm. in Montreal. Because when they finally did start coming to Canada, I would go and see them anytime I could. Like sure. in Montreal, I go and see them. When, yeah. Like they finally showed up. One, they finally played here at two o'clock in the morning. One time they like got across the border somehow. I do not know how they finally got across the border, but they did. I mean, all those guys had felonies. I, <laughs> I could, especially that lineup yeah, during that Boulder era. And oh, all those, yeah, it was. Uh, but it was it was just such a. I don't know. It was like it was such a cool moment because you it, like, there's like certain records that kind of hit hardcore and punk, and once it hits, it's just like everything's kind of changed. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and uh, for sure, and it was fun to it was fun to be. I mean, I you know. At the time, even I was like, "This isn't really my scene." Like the, yeah. but I really, lo- I still really loved, I loved it. And a little fun trivia is that I was sniffed around to be the bass player of Hatebreed at one point. <sighs> a very different life you could be. I right and now. I said I didn't even speak to them because I was too afraid of all of them. <laughs> I talked to Jamie a little. Because you know he was he'd be taking money at the door. Like, yeah, he was the guy. Do you see Jasta? What was it? Jasta. Jasta fourteen was like the minute before I kind of got involved. In yeah. Uh, so I, they, yeah, I think they broke up basically the year I started going to hardcore shows, and then Hatebreed started. Okay. So no, I never saw Jasta fourteen. Okay. No. Uh, what about Cornerstone? Cornerstone was a huge deal for me. That was the first band that I heard that um, was playing the style of hardcore that I loved, which is all the early Rev stuff, Mm -hmm. which I didn't think existed. And then I found out that they weren't really... At that moment, they weren't a band anymore. So I got the record, and I was like, oh, shit, there's a Connecticut band that's playing this. They had broken up. And then the the brother of the bass player of Cornerstone, so it was Kevin Rorick, played bass in Cornerstone. His brother is named Pat Rorick, and he had a band called Fast Break. Pat Break, right? Pat Break. And I had heard that they were the same, doing the same kind of thing. And I went and saw them at the tune-in. And I was obsessed. I got the demo. I immediately went to talk to Pat. And Pat was, I had long hair. I was a mess, you know? <laughs> Pat, and Pat was the nut. He was like, so, he's like, excited. He's like, come back, see us again. Like, you're the, you know, it's great. I memorized the entire demo by the second time I saw them and I was singing every word. He's like, I, I remember you from the last show. Like, that's so awesome. You know, and I kind of became friends with those guys. And then I found out that this Toby from Cornerstone did a fanzine and I bought that. And that's how I learned about the Chromags. You know, it was like, it was a very weird route. It was hard to get that stuff too, right? Like the Chromags thing, there was that reissue CD. It was a touch and go reissue, I think. Wasn't it? No, it wasn't touch and go. It was um, Rock Hotel, maybe it was called? Maybe. Something? Yeah, that's what I got. On profile. Yeah, that double And I CD. remember just being like, what the fuck is this? I was like, what the hell is this <laughs> shit? But Toby was, he had a zine that was almost like, there was multiple articles just being like, the Chromex is the greatest band of all time. And So I forced myself. I'm like, these guys are cool. So I forced myself to kind of like, love the Chromex. And now, of course, I love the Chromex. Yeah, but, but they are, it's weird because like when you first hear them, it, it doesn't sound like you think it's going to sound. Well, the vocals are, yeah, the vocals are crazy. The vocals crazy. are weird, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the vocals, the vocals are, are crazy. The first, because I knew, the only Chromex I knew was I had the touch-and-go bootleg of Youth of Today performing. It's like live shows in Oh, Europe. Lost and Found. The Lost, Lost and Found. found. Lost yeah, and Found, yeah, 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 not touch-and-go, Lost and Found. And uh, they cover Malfunction. Oh, yeah, they do do that on that... And it's like, you know, Ray's voice is insane. He's like, <laughs> yow, 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 yow. and I was like, I loved it. And then I heard their version. I'm like, weird. <laughs> I bought that. Youth, I, that was one of the first Youth of Day things I bought because yeah. all that stuff was out of print. Totally. And uh, I remember buying it 
and like the worst band to have a live recording of because there's like no vocals for the, the song. that record lives in my memory for a minute the one of the main ones is i have it memorized as they play potential friends yeah goes, this one's for kenny and dave and hutch we potential friends potential friends. Yeah. yeah and then there's uh they do me you youth crew yeah and it's like a German crowd, and they don't speak English. So he's like, sing along! The words are me, you, youth crew. And then he like, tells them. And it's like, ah! Ooh! <laughs> Just like yelling. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that I listened to that so much, because it was really the... Outside of the Rev cassette I had of... Um, I think it was the second LP. It was the only Youth of Today thing. Could you imagine how thankless that tour Youth of Today did, would have been? Like, every show, so, my friend... Uh, 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 Robbie Brookside, who's been on the show a bunch, was telling me the other day that he was at a Youth of Today show where all the people from Doom showed up wasted to heckle Youth of Today. Like every day you'd get on the van, you'd be like, "Well, got to defend Straight Edge again." To yeah, a bunch of I mean, I, fucking you know, honestly, I I think that would be a complete nightmare. And I I think even when Earth Crisis was around, when I was going to shows, yeah. that band would get fucking harass harass yeah well there's that infamous show right where they got yogurt bombed and yeah it's the wasn't it chris from inhumanity uh i know he staged over the fur coat on i don't know because it was uh fuck it was all it's been on the show i'm trying to remember who was yeah i I gotta go back and now listen to past episodes of this podcast i yeah i totally uh yeah that you know and obviously like they were not they had no sense of humor they invited they invited this kind of heckling in a certain sense (laughs) Um, but I was such a huge fan of them at the time that I was like, just couldn't understand it. I liked them, but I was also, now I like them a lot more than I did back then because they weren't fast. I liked Path of Resistance because it was fast. Oh, I loved Path of Resistance. (sighs) That was so good. So good. good. I listened to it the other day and I'm like, yeah, this still holds up. Oh, it's a great record. It's a great record. It is awesome. (laughs) So, because all that stuff kicks off in Connecticut with the Youth Crew Revival first, right? Before 10 Yard Fight. It was, yeah. This is like, so Fast Break was pre 10 Yard Fight, um, follow through. um, Tenfold was like kind of an Earth Crisis ripoff band at first, which was great. (laughs) They had this bozo singer at the beginning who kind of like left the scene early. But it was like, he had no rhythm, his voice, but he was perfect. He's yeah. like this blockhead <laughs> who sang for Tenfold. And I love that first seven, it sounds terrible, but I it's called, I think it's called Vegan Justice. It is. Yeah. On Stan Hard Records. Yeah. Stan Hard Records. Yeah, Stan Hard Records, yes. And uh, um, I loved it. But then they went youth crew as the tides were turning. Um, and Jesse, who ran Stan Hard Records and was in follow through later to do Right Brigade, he made me a mixtape of... Like classic Youth Crew seven inches of stuff that was just not available anywhere, mm-hmm. and you know he he like he's like this and it says I still have it. It says Team Green X Team Green X. He made it for me, handed it to me. It's like Uniform Choice, uh, No for an Answer. I'm trying to think of Brotherhood, um, and it just changed my whole thing. And those guys were all they're from. Not to. I don't know Jesse exactly, but a lot of the guys in Tenfold were from like they're from they were kind of rich kids, so they were buying like original Uniform Choice T-shirts and like the old Vintage Bold T-shirt. They all wore vintage, hardcore shirts all the time. Cargo shorts, Nikes. They had the uniform down perfect. It was like uh, like people always make fun of Fashion Core. Yeah, but you had to be on your fat. Like that was the first place where. 
you know, people would make fun of you for not wearing your the right shoes. Or like, oh, that's not period correct. Like, no, it's totally true. It was it, like I, I would. I mean know, that here. I'm not saying in Connecticut. I no, it was like that, and I, and I and I would make fun of bands. Like there was a band in Brooklyn that was playing that was like sounding like the Rolling Stones, and it looked like I would call it a Civil War reenactment because they would dress <laughs> exactly. This. But that's what that was too. I yeah. mean, people were really like looking at the records. What are these guys wearing? Champion hoodies, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it was there was like a we had a little crew called team stage dive and it was all about positive dancing and stage. Dive. <laughs> it was like Jesse Pat from fast break. I mean, it was, yeah, it was pretty funny. I think that needs to do a reunion. Forget the orchid reunion. <laughs> yeah. Let's have team stage dive do a reunion. Yeah. I think, I think there might be some back issues involved in that at this point. <laughs> probably from team stage. Dive. Yeah. Probably from, yeah. Uh, where, uh, where'd you kind of go from getting into this stuff? Cause you do have like crazy diverse music tastes. Like when did you start kind of, expanding outside of just the youth crew stuff you mean like in the hardcore sphere yeah the hardcore yeah sphere um so not really i was all through high school that was my world was that was you playing youth hardcore. crew band i tried to start a few and then they never we never played a show um and i was never the singer i always played guitar or bass or drums and i would just recruit any loser i could find to kind of like try to do it uh but we never never did anything um and at the end of my time in high school, I started Jeff's band, Switch Dance. I basically weaseled my way in as a guitar player. And I was, at that point, I'd seen Dead Guy. And I was like, oh, this is good. This is what I like. And like Coalesce. I was like, this is very good things. And I just was like, we're going to do this now. And I just basically just threw my guitar around with them for a while. So I liked that stuff, but I didn't realize it, there it was... It was still Switch Dance? It, we changed the name. It was called All I Ask. And you guys did records with All I Ask, right? We did a, a seven inch, and then later they took an unreleased song as a split after Orchid. Yeah, it's an Orchid kind of period. Yeah, it was. It was. It was pre. I was doing it. It was a cash in record. Someone decided to cash in. Yeah, big cash in. <laughs> split with Joshua Fit for Battle. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so I got to college, and I was still very much like, uh, you know, mouthpiece T-shirt, you know youth crew guy backwards baseball cap and uh will killingsworth who's the guitar player of orchid was going there as well we were the same year and um you know how it is with hardcore kids you see each other around and you gravitate towards each other and we started talking and he made me a mixtape and it was like acme morser um lots of power violence stuff i'm trying to think of uh, um Word Salad. You remember that? Yeah. Prank Records, right? So sick. Uh, and I was just like, oh shit, like this stuff is great. And he had already been in a band, a grindcore band called Laceration. Great band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they do a split with Ulcer? I Yes, they did. Yeah. Great record. Yeah, <laughs> they, they have a lot of splits. Um, and he ran Clean Paint Records back then too. That was already going by that point. Yes, he had the label. He had, I think he had toured with Laceration. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, an 18 year old kid. Like he was... He was pretty well established in that world. Um, anyway, so then he came to me and said, I want to start a band. Do you want to do it? Like the stuff on the tape that I sent you. And I said, I was like, yeah, sure. And I assumed he wanted me to play guitar. And he's like, no, I don't want you to play guitar. I'm going to play guitar. I want you to sing. Because I would sing backups for all I ask. And, but I never was like a singer. And I was like, yeah, all right, sure. And uh, he had a friend of his, this guy, Brad Wallace, who's great. It's like a very smart, very funny guy. Also very much in the grindcore 
he was like a man is the bastard kid mm-hmm. from the south mm-hmm. and um and so that was the three of us we had no drummer and then we had heard a friend of ours say that at umass which is a neighboring college there's this guy named jeff who's a drummer he's like in the punk and he was a nice guy so we asked him if he wanted to play and he showed up and the first thing he said to us was i can't play fast which <laughs> ended up being a lie and we just started will will is like um the thing about orchid was will would show up with the song done essentially and then i would write lyrics i mean he would not the vocals or anything but the all the guitar stuff and he would tell brad what to play on bass and then he would let jeff kind of figure it out on drums but he had the structure kind of set up before we'd walk in and he was studying music at school so we had access to a recording studio we recorded the demo and he was booking all the shows on campus for that kind of music so we played our first show was with pig destroyer black army jacket Devola? I'm trying to remember. But we played that show. As soon as the show was over, Scott Hall said, do you guys want to do a split 7-inch? With Pig Destroyer. With Pig Destroyer. And they only had a demo out at that point. And we were like, sure. And then that was it. And then we were like, off to the races. That Acme scene that you brought up, Morzer and Acme, and there was like, I'm trying to see other bands were in that. There was a label called Percoro. Yeah. Uh, it was the Bremen was the town in Germany where a lot of these bands were coming from that we were Will and I were like obsessed with yeah that stuff was fucking awesome and that was the that and I think that scene and um, the Canadian scene uh, um, One Eyed God Prophecy and um, Uranus Mm -hmm. those bands were 100% what informed what we were doing in Orchid that's what we liked that's what we wanted to play and that's what we we just ripped that off I love thinking that like early Uranus shows probably had, you know, people that would wind up in Arcade Fire. Gavin McGinnis was there. <laughs> no, God's God, <laughs> Black Emperor were there. That's you know. true. Yeah, God. Yeah. You know, they're all yeah. like these yeah. shows. We tried to orchid. We were because we loved Great American Steak Religion, the label. Yeah. That Yannick from um, Uranus ran. We desperately wanted the Orchid record to come out on that, and he was like, no. It's like this sucks. I don't like this. He like told us he didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny Yannick. Like, I even think he thinks Uranus sucks. Like when I try and bring it up to him, he's like, "That's yeah, funny. That's not. Well, it doesn't suck. It <laughs> no, it's amazing. Fucking rules. It's fucking amazing. Rules so hard. It's kind of nuts. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So we did. So we did the demo, and then we did that split with Pig Destroyer, and then I don't know how it ended up like. Which one's on Amendment Records? Because you had is, is that Amendment the, was the um, that's split? the Pig Destroyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a, this guy Dave, who was in a band called Facade Burn Black, who Clean Plate put out their LP, mm-hmm. and then Dave was like, "Can I put out the Pig Destroyer split?" Both both Amendment and Clean Plate Records, when you go through their their labels and see what they put out, yeah, amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there's tons of good stuff in both labels. Yeah, for like sure. really cool ears and like not like centered in one genre. Yeah. Or subgenre of it. Well, well, yeah, I think Clean Clean Plate Clean Plate had a point of view. It has a point of view, but like there's still like there's like there's some outsider outliers. Emo violence on it, then there's more like straight up hardcore. At the beginning, it was really crust and power violence was kind of the bread and butter. We used to do crust too, like ass rash. Record on it. Yeah, yeah. We used to do we we would have a thing called Demo Wednesdays, and I would go to Will's dorm and we would listen to all the demos that were submitted to him. And, you know, one was, I remember we got a letter. It's like, our guitar player only has one hand. And I was like, well, you got to put this out. <laughs> and we listened to it and we realized it was not as 
it was not his uh, uh, fretting hand. It was like his strumming, strumming hand. hand. I was like, oh, that's not as good. You know, didn't I don't even remember the name. But like Combat Wounded Veterans sent him a, a demo, and the demo was amazing looking. It sounded awesome. And for some reason, Will was like, couldn't put it out at the time or didn't want to. I don't remember why. But then we became, that's how we became good friends with Chris, and we were doing a lot of shows. With you do a guys. split with them eventually on Clean Play. We the did, six yeah, we did, yeah. Um, and yeah. I think wound up doing it on, fuck, what was that label that also put it like an Asuk record and Hot Water Music, like schematic records or something? Oh, or, it's, um, was it on that? It was on like the split. No, the first combat wounded veteran. Oh, the, the, I think it was, is it prank? Is it on prank in the end? No, oh, I don't know. Okay. I don't remember, but yeah, I could, I'm not sure. Okay. I, I thought it was on one of those Florida labels, but, uh, yeah, they were such an awesome band. Um, but yeah, I guess, I don't know. I don't even know if I answered your question. I don't know. <laughs> but that's yeah how I got into other stuff was basically Will was like hey check out all this stuff so then I was like learning about I think but like as I was leaving going to college I started hearing like I think I got the Swing Kids 7 inch somehow like I was finding out about stuff that existed outside of that little world of Connecticut hardcore is that where you kind of thought you know it's interesting because like some people come on this show especially people that are in bands that like end up changing things or end up being a band that's influential on the next sort of wave or the next few waves of hardcore uh and they just don't necessarily like the scene that they helped encourage to form and they wanted to be part of a different scene like cedric from at the drive and when he was on like he's like yeah all i want to do is on be on ebullition like i just had no right. interest in any of this stuff yeah like all these pop punk bands like i just want to be on you know an ebullition band to be in heart attack and that yeah. was my dream yeah i mean i think that's a that's definitely a common thread. I remember when I was in a band called Violent Bullshit and we played, we did like one, we played, did one sort of short tour and we played a, a festival in, in Austin and we played with Ceremony, that band mm. Ceremony. And I had never, I knew who they were, but I had never heard them before. And there was one guy in the band who was like basically advertising that he hated being in a hardcore band. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he's like, is it? Yeah. And I was like, I can relate to this. I understand this. Yeah. You know, he's like, what I'm doing sucks. There's cooler, I'm, there's cooler things that I'm into that isn't that, you know. And I feel like I felt like that the entire time I was in Orchid, that what we were doing was not cool. There was cooler things. Um, but also, you know, like, like Charles Bronson was such a huge influence on me and the way I thought about hardcore, where it was like a specific genre. But Mark kind of, Mark McCoy, the singer of Charles Bronson, existed kind of outside of that world yeah. like when you think of power violence or grindcore you don't think of a guy like mark and the way mark looked and the aesthetics of the records like having twiggy on the cover of one of the albums like all that stuff i found really interesting and i think i was always interested in this idea of including stuff that would annoy people who like the style of music we were playing <laughs> which is sort of my my nature is to be contrarian i think but you know, like... Which was also Charles Bronson. Yes. Yeah. And I think I think it was that was a huge influence on me in terms of the importance of aesthetics in hardcore. And, you know, and the content doesn't have to match the music. And so I took a lot of inspiration from that. And then I realized you j just need to write about stuff that you're feeling passionate about. And it doesn't have to be, like, brutal or heavy or depressive or whatever you guys listen to black metal a lot too no <laughs> really i know it's weird we were not i i was not will will may well have been i came upon that much later um 
I, you know, I was a big fan of like death metal and, and, and kind of thrash metal and stuff. It was like, like at the gates kind of a Yo, thing. Yeah, you guys yeah, we liked at the gates. It's amazing how much of an influence they had on, uh, on that, like late 90s that, that Gothenburg scene, um, in flames, like the first in flames yeah. record, all that stuff was such a big deal. When, when at the gates played Connecticut for the first time, it was people went nuts. I mean, it was, they were like, a hard, I mean, and the singer went on to do kind of more hardcore-ish. Well, stuff. they're all hardcore kids. Those dudes yeah. in that band too. Yeah, yeah. It's just so weird because they were a metal band. I don't, maybe people knew that they were hardcore kids back then. I certainly didn't. I did not, but they were just taken to by hardcore kids. It's almost like on a subconscious level, people knew like, and oh. it really appealed. Yeah. yeah. It really appealed. They're ticking yeah. all the same boxes and things like that. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I love them. Uh, I, I, I want to talk, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but I want to move on to, uh, how did you actually wind, wind up, how did you wind up doing records on Ebullition? <laughs> so, Clean Plate was distributed through Ebullition, because, because Kent, the, the guy who, Kent McClard is the guy who ran Ebullition, um, he had a, uh, distribution where he would, he did like, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other labels he carried, but he, one of them was, he had an exclusive distribution thing with Will. And they had a good thing going. They were buddies. Um, and so when we were... We had done a couple seven inches and we wanted to do an LP. We asked Yannick. No. And then we... Want, we were, and then Will was like, maybe Evolution. I was like, oh shit, that would be incredible. And we sent him... He had heard the records. I mean, I think he heard the seven inches. And then he was like, no, I don't want to do this. He's like, it's not for me. It's not my cup of tea. And then Will was not to be deterred by this and he so he's like let's record in the practice space some songs that are going to be on the lp and send it to him so we sent it to him and i think he was like no i don't want to do this <laughs> and then it was we really just wore him down like after a while it was like we really are trying to find a home for this like i you know it doesn't have to be a big pressing and he finally was like fine i'll do it he really didn't want to and wow. i don't think he ever I, i'm not even sure he like i think he likes it now <laughs> <laughs> like like bought him a house basically but um uh yeah yeah so that's how it came out in abolition and we were i mean i was i didn't i always really liked kent i still like kent um i was so excited to be on abolition yeah and also just to have like an lp out yeah. like the whole thing was so exciting I mean, i remember we were going to um california to like deliver him the uh the cover and all that stuff because it was you know wasn't the internet you know what yeah I mean? you couldn't send that shit. <laughs> yeah yeah and i remember he, pusshead did the art for some band and they got lost in the mail we had the same thing where like the insert like the insert got something happened to the insert and i had to do it on the road we went to kinko's and so those the for those of you who've seen the chaos is me record there's like a fold-out insert and it has two like crappy skeletons in a coffin that's from a notebook i had that i drew in the in the van all of it's hand typed on a typewriter and i had all those pieces do you have the, a typewriter with you or you had the pieces no that was the, oh, that okay. was done and then the photo on the back was we played a show in california with Noothcrush at a record store oh that's sick and we gave our friend brian rotinger who put out our first seven inch who was kind of our roadie out in california a disposable camera and just told him take the whole roll during our set and then we developed it at an hour developing place and took the best one and put it on the back of it. I mean, it's like, it was all made on the road to Kent's place. And then we handed it over and that was the record. Damn. That's yeah. awesome. It's funny because Ebullition, when you think about the records that jump out to me that they put out, it was obviously Orchid stuff. 
the the Crudo Spitboy split. Best, yeah. And Downcast. Yeah, yeah, Downcast, yeah. Downcast is one of those bands that I think has been kind of forgotten. <laughs> totally, yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> but it was like... I think they were barely remembered at the time, but I, <laughs> I, 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 they're great. But the thing about Ebullition was all the records were cheap. You yeah. could get them so cheap. Yeah. And Heart Attack was kind of like the number two punk magazine at that point. Yeah, after Maximum. After yeah, Maximum for, Rock and Roll, for right? For sure, for sure. So it was like it, it had this amazing infrastructure built in. It did. And the funny thing is, is that Kent refused to do ads, like sell ads, even to fanzines. Mm. So like he would never put an Ebullition ad in like Maximum or anything. Like you would never yeah. see them anywhere. Yeah. It would be in his magazine, but that's it. He refused to do CDs. We didn't put out CDs until the very, like an, the Orchid CD didn't exist until like the year we broke up essentially. <laughs> Yeah, but the amount like it was still amazing what he was able to accomplish and the amount of records we were able to sell through him and like the how great the relationship was. I mean, he's still on the red like every quarter. He's like on top of it. You yeah. Know? Well, this it's is pretty the, amazing. And it's it's uh, his stuff never went out of print. So it wasn't like you, you had to like get it for this little window and never no. do it again. Yeah, he yeah, but he'll every time it goes out of print, he's like, I don't know if people want to buy this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he'll always write us and be like, I don't know if it's even worth doing again. <laughs> and then he'll print it and then it'll sell or whatever. But yeah, it's pretty funny. He's he's a funny dude. Uh, so I, as I say, like I don't want to punish you all day, and there's so much stuff I want to get to, including yeah. our shared time together. Yeah, yeah, we could spend the whole day just talking about sure yeah yeah stuff. i'd be happy to uh so when when you moved to new york orchid is done or is orchid no done? i was still doing work we were still doing orchid um i left college early and i went to new york um and yeah orchid was still happening um and then Je the two jeffs selaney and garlock from orchid both moved to brooklyn when they were done with school uh, and Orchid was still happening. And then that's when we kind of, Will was sort of like, maybe this is the end of this because we're far apart now. And we've, we'd kind of done a lot of stuff we wanted to do. And the, you know, our big thing was like, well, we should do every size record and then break up, you know, <laughs> which we kind of did. And then, uh, did you guys do an 11 inch? We didn't do an 11. Thank you. We didn't do that. Damien. <laughs> I think that's like some straight up no idea only shit. No, like we, we did a we did a we did a six inch. Yeah. We did well. Is this the skull split? Might well, be. that's what I was wondering. Like, what does that count as? I don't know. Don't size know wise, you got to have your test press. Yeah, I know. <laughs> get the ruler. With the oh, test I press. do. Yeah, I have to. I should look. I don't know, but yeah. So we and then and then you know at that point Will had his studio up in uh, Western Mass and he wanted to record the record so. We knew that as we were working on that record, that was the last thing. And um, we knew we were going to do a, a set of last shows, and that was kind of the end of that. But it was it, it overlapped my time in Brooklyn. It's it's funny how, like, you know, there's, like, really a, a natural life cycle for a hardcore band back then where it's, like, once you do that tour, maybe get to Japan. Like, Japan would be the, the upper echelon of being Which we able never to did. Yeah, yeah, and I think because I think even in the 90s, it was super fun. Like, unless you were... Yeah. You know, Madball or H2O or something. Yeah. Like you, people weren't really going over in the same way. Yeah, didn't do Japan or Australia were the two big ones that we... Yeah, if once again, Australia, I can't think of too many bands that would do it. Back we got asked to tour Mexico with Los Crudos, and we said no. Whoa, that would have been fucking insane! I mean, not to rub it in. I know. Well, you know, what happened was, because we were a bunch of, you know, we were a bunch of babies, basically. And Martin, who's 
such a massive influence on the, how I even think about how hardcore works and what hardcore is capable of. I think he's just one of the most brilliant guys. Um, and we, you know, became friendly over the years and, uh, he's like, you guys should come with us to Mexico. And he, we saw, he showed us footage of them playing Mexico the last time. And it was like, it was two clips and one was in a tunnel. They were like in an underground tunnel and you couldn't see the end of it. And it was just full of people and they were just whipping rocks and bottles at the band. The whole Whoa. Time. And it was just looked like a riot. It was like, man, I don't think that made it into the Crudos documentary. And I was like that. Again, this is like, I, I could be making some of this stuff up in my own head, but I know we saw something. And then I was just like, wow, that's fucking scary. And he was like, no, that means they like it. And I was like, oh. And then they played a, a soccer. It was like a soccer stadium. And again, it was like a fucking riot. And I think we were all freaked out because they were huge there. Yeah. Like it was like, a, like in a way that you couldn't comprehend as an American hardcore band, like as big as hardcore could be here, they were huge there. And I think we, yeah, we were just like a little freaked and we didn't do it. I, I regret it still. I wish we had done it. Did you guys play on the floor till the very end? Because that would have been fucking insane trying we, to play on the floor there. We did play, not till the, we, at the very end we had to play on stages. I think the, basically there was a bit of a change when we, we did more than Music Fest and. Is that Columbus? That's Columbus? Columbus. Called? It was like a big festival they did every year. Oh and, God, I went. Yeah. I went the year I must have gone the year before. I went and it was headlined by Asuk, but Asuk refused to play on the stage, so they had to play on a frat house front lawn down the street. <laughs> and so Beer and Weapons Meet replaced them, I think. Really? Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, we we said we didn't want to play on the stage, and they were like, there's it's not possible. You yeah. have to play on the stage. So we played on the stage, but we invited people on the stage with us, and it was a fucking mess. And then we, the last shows we played on stages, because, except for, I mean, there was a couple of venues that just didn't have a stage. Yeah. Um, and we played on the floor. I think our very last show was on the floor, but we, a couple of the shows were on stages. Yeah. In Mexico would have been impossible to do that. But yeah. I guess like, you know, at that point, once you tour Europe, once you put out yeah. an LP or two, yeah. unless you're going to go for it, like, what are you going to do? Yeah. And we never, I, I, and I, I think this was maybe to my detriment but i was never careerist about music ever 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 i guess like the only band from that scene that really kind of was in retrospect with like locust maybe like when i say that scene i mean like broadly no American no DIY I, I i was gonna say the same thing and a band oddly we've never orchid never played with um but you know that first seven inch and lp was a big hit amongst all of us we loved it um but yeah they they did go for it um but yeah, I don't know. We never, it never occurred to us to think of it as a, I mean, even though it was essentially our jobs, it didn't occur to us that it would be a, a career in any sense. So. It, well, it's interesting as you look at the bands that would have been, that had gone for it and, and, and done it, you yeah. know, and it's like, Avery. Yeah. You know, like everyone else had been on the major label, it hadn't really worked out or worked yeah. out to like greater or lesser extent, you know, Sick of It All maybe next. Yeah. In I mean, Sick of It All was, they were very big for sure. But like in terms of band, H2O, like H2O, I guess. H2O, but like all those bands also are playing with sounds that have more sort of commercial. Yeah. There's no, know. there was really nowhere for like, there's not a way in which Orchid would be, it couldn't exist in a larger venue than it did. Until your next band where you help invent the lane that you could have survived in. Because that's what happens. 
the next lane that opens up, which I think we can talk about how this forms, because believe sure. me, I've been spending a lot of time messing with these ideas in my head, but like the the thing that kind of comes out of the, I guess, vicification of hardcore or, <laughs> or like was like an entryway to kind of go for it without having to you know, go for it and leave it all behind. Like you could kind of do some sort of like weird alternative path. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think when you look, looking back on it and analyzing, it's very different than it was being in the moment of the whole, of being in Brooklyn at that time. And I don't want to like wax poetic, but it was a, it was a pretty fertile period. There was, when I moved to Brooklyn, I really even never even been to New York, particularly, and I had never, I certainly never been to Brooklyn. But I moved right to Brooklyn. Can we take a break so I can go to the bathroom? Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. All right. So you're saying when you got to Brooklyn? Yeah. So um, when I first moved to Brooklyn, it was uh, well, you know, when you were talking about the we were talking about earlier about how there's, you always think there's something cooler happening. When I was in Orchid, I was dating a girl at Brown, which is in Providence, Rhode Island. And so I was going to Providence all the time and I was seeing all these Providence bands. So I was seeing bands like Black Dice, um, uh, Lightning Bolts, um, Airborne Radar. And I was just like, oh, this is cool. You know, <laughs> this is what, we suck. Th these bands are awesome. And I guess Airborne Radar had the connection to the Locust and that whole kind of like... 31G put out their record, yeah. and they did the Oops tour. Uh, and I know, yeah, I think they put out some of Eric's new stuff as well. Yeah. Um, I loved... I mean, Airborne Radar, I think, was one of the great bands when I was around. I, one of my favorite live bands. I can tell you many stories about how crazy those guys were. Um, but yeah, so when I got to New York... I always, you always feel like a bit of a rube coming from, like I came from, I only lived in rural towns, went to college in a rural place, then I came to New York, and everybody's cool, and it was just a very different thing, and the, there was a lot of cool bands happening, um, and I, but I didn't think of it as anything different than when I lived in Massachusetts, so I just started booking shows at this loft I lived at, because I just thought, people, you do house shows. Yeah. But it wasn't really going... People didn't really do that there. So I was doing shows, and I booked Airbun Radar, Lightning Bolts, um, La Savvy Fav, uh, Black Dice played there. It was great. And we had this huge loft that was right on the water in Dumbo. Um, and... So what year is this time-wise? Like 2000... No, it's, it's 99. So this is before... The Strokes thing happens before, before the Strokes. New York, cool New York, kind of happens. Yeah, but it's like it's ha it's happening. Yeah, it's it's actually happening. Yeah, right but it's like um, it's not. It hasn't Been crossed, crossed yeah. over yet. <laughs> yeah. uh, and there was a lot of cool clubs. A place called Brownies in the East Village. There was like a there was there was a lot of fun stuff happening, and cool bands. And uh, I just remember wanting to start something else. But this, even when I was in Orchid, we were we did a million side projects. Will, me, we were, it was like all different versions of us together, but doing different, we did like grindcore bands. We did, we did a locust ripoff band called Mars Colony that I played guitar in. Like we did all kinds of, I mean, we did all kinds of stuff. So it wasn't weird to think about starting another band. It didn't feel like a betrayal to Orchid. So we did a tour of the Red Scare, Orchid did. And then Kip from the Red Scare was moving to Brooklyn. And I th thought the Red Scare was the coolest band. And I thought Kip was the coolest guy. 
And um, I was like, when you move to Brooklyn, we should start a band together. And he's like, yes. And then Je the two Jeffs came. I was like, all right, we should do this new band. And then I met Justin Cherno, who was in Turing Machine and prior to that Pitch Blend. And uh, actually, it's a funny short funny story about that is when I was booking shows at my loft, I was still like a very pretentious hardcore kid <laughs> yeah. and Turing machine, Justin emailed me and said, we'd love to play your loft. It looks, it's so cool. I've been to, a, I went to a show there. We'd love to play there. And I was like, well, you know, you're on Jade tree. So we're trying to help bands that are struggling. We're not trying to help. Like, Jade tree was too big. Jade tree was too big. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> the tight ship you're running there. That's not even Max Rock and Roll rules. And I went to see, I didn't really know anybody there in Brooklyn. And I went to uh, Billy from Seisha, who I knew from playing shows back in the day with Orchid. He became like a Northern Soul DJ. He was playing like soul records at this kind of skinheady bar called The Raven in uh, on Avenue A. And so he invited me to go see it. I went to see him and I was sat, he was DJing and I was sat at the bar next to Justin Cherno, but we had not met before. We started chatting and he's like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you're that asshole. <laughs> and, but we hit it off right away and I asked him to play music and he thought I was asking him to join Orchid. And he's like, I can't play like that. Then I was like, no, no, a different band. And then we just started rehearsing and um, I had an idea for what I wanted to do and I obviously didn't quite pan out exactly that way but um but yeah there was no again no designs there was no i had nothing in mind beyond like wanting to be part of what was happening in new york at the time and that was sort of it's funny because you mentioned not going to new york like i didn't go to new york well till after this era but um but you just there new york was kind of like and there was new york hardcore yeah but it just felt like it was so separate from this scene that you know i'm loosely connected to and you're connected to obviously like it feels like orchid never played we played abc no rio once i lived in new york but we never played before like yeah. it i had gone to new york two or three times to see hip-hop shows when i was in college um to see like company flow and like cool keith or something well, that would be pretty cool it was cool actually uh mob deep i went and saw once so it was but i'd never gone to see like a hardcore show or anything yeah or like spent any real time there yeah, like it's really, it's interesting when you look back on it now, and obviously this is a very storied scene, there's going to be a movie about the meet me in the bathroom book now and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's done. But uh, the movie's done? Yeah. Or did they interview it yet? No. No, no. <laughs> did no, you want to be interviewed? <laughs> no, I have, uh, it was funny, when that book came out, I was like, simultaneously like, this is dumb, and also completely offended that they didn't ask me to be in it. But uh, <laughs> uh, I found the book to actually be quite enjoyable in a knowing some of the people involved but uh yeah the movie i i it's finished i know some people have seen it i'm curious but. it's a documentary right it's a documentary so is that scene like completely a fabricated scene in retrospect or did you feel like that was a scene that was happening at the time well the way that the book discusses it like the like the strokes and like strokes in dfa the strokes were not part of the scene yeah uh but they were they the stranglers. They loomed heavy over like people you knew who they were, but like right away everyone hated the Strokes. If you lived in New York, yeah, because you're like fuck these guys. Like they never really, but but like uh, uh, and DFA was its own world. Uh, they were not part of like the stuff that was happening with like yeah yeah yeahs Interpol. All that stuff was a scene to a degree. Interpol. Okay, here's a good connection. So when I first moved to New York, I started playing in a band with Billy from Seisha 
and Greg Drudy, who ran Level Plane Records. Yeah. Was also, I think he was in, he might have been in Stacia. Matt, who was maybe in Stacia. It was, anyway, it was like a group of those guys. They were all friends. I played guitar in it. It was called She's Hit. We played one show, two shows, made a demo. And Greg was like, because we named it after a birthday party song. And he's like, oh, you like that stuff? Do you like uh, Joy Division? I was like, yeah, I like Joy Division. He's like, you should come see my band. We're playing at Mercury Lounge. I think you'd like it. And he was the drummer of Interpol, the original drummer of Interpol. Oh, before they got the guy from Swerve Driver. Yeah. Oh, what? So I went, <laughs> and I was like, there was nobody there. Yeah. And I was like, this is pretty good. I'm like, it really does sound like Joy Division. Like, I li-. And then he gave me the demo. I'm like, demo's good, you know? I'm like, this band's going to, I think this is going to be good. And he got fired because he wouldn't wear a suit. <laughs> He might have gotten fired because he wasn't a great drummer. I don't know. But he was fired from the band. Um, but all those bands, every band that succeeded from that scene, like the Yaz and and the, and like the Liars. Oh, well, Nick's and, connected to all the stuff we're talking about, too, right? Like he, Zinner? Yeah. Yeah. Like, he's like a, a hardcore kid. Yeah. Too. Yeah, so Nick like, is great. He's, I love Nick. That's what I like. I'm fascinated by the secret hardcore history that's going on. They, like, everybody was going to hardcore shows. I mean, all those people you would see pop up at. I mean, it was all adjacent. It was yeah. all hardcore adjacent. And, um, but all those bands that had success worked like crazy. Like the Yeah Yeah Yeahs played to nobody forever. Interpol, we, Panthers headlined over the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. I mean, Interpol played to nobody forever. All those bands like worked really hard. Black Dice. I mean, it was, that was, that was a real scene. That was like a group of people that were all playing shows together all the time. It also kind of perfectly coincides with like Vice, Vice's arrival in New York. Yeah. And, and, and I guess like. Steve Aoki moving there and that's connection to... He didn't move there. He didn't live there ever? No, he came. I, uh... <laughs> you were buddies with Steve, yeah? No, no, I met him one time. Oh, uh, we were really good friends. He has a Gorilla Biscuits back, pat, back piece. Yeah, because you well, told me that. Back, tiny, he has a tiny Yeah, you told me that and so I met him at Coachella when we played Coachella. Someone introduced me like, and I'm like, can I see your Gorilla Biscuits back tattoo? <laughs> was the first thing I said to him. He's like, yeah. He showed it to me. He was psyched. And he's like, and then I was like, yeah, I heard you're the guy who bootleg Walter sings the hits. And he he's did. Like, and he's like, yeah, but you can't tell anyone. I'm worried they're going to find out. Now he owns it. Yeah, very yeah. proudly wears it. Yes. But at the time he's like, don't tell anyone. I don't yeah, want anyone to find yeah. out. Yeah. It's no, Steve and I, because he used to write for a heart attack. Yeah. Do reviews. And we played, he had a, a pickle place, patch. The pickle patch where he lived. Because um, Mike Fight lived there too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who put out the Left for Dead record, the Chokehold side project. Yeah. So yeah. We're all connected. And Steve, I was DJing. I was DJing from all throughout Orchid, like mostly doing hip hop and dancehall stuff. And uh, when I got to New York, I was doing it. And then I, I got Steve to DJ with me. It was the first time he ever DJed. <laughs> was with me at this place called B Bar. And uh, look where he is now. And you're like, you know what's really cool when you throw cakes at people in the crowd? Yeah, I was like, the thing I do. Yeah, here's my, here's my trademark. So these people who aren't paying attention to us, I throw cake. Um, but no, he never lived, he didn't, but his family was here. Yeah. He had a lot of family here. So he was here a lot. So I saw, I saw him a lot. And yeah, it was then the Vice thing, um, which never, the label started, we were one of the first things signed to the label. <laughs> you mean the second incarnation of the label, my friend. What was the first incarnation? SSG. Shane, uh, oh, Sarush, man. Gavin Records, and they put out Tricky Woo, no. um, and then they put out oh, this band right. called Paper Cuts, and then yeah. they put out the Bionic Tape. Oh my god! And uh, I don't think any of them actually. Maybe the Paper Cuts came out. None of the other records actually wound up coming out. I don't think. <laughs> and that was the original incarnation. But yeah, Vice Records had not started yet. Yeah, it was. So we were. We were. It was like us and Chromio, and I'm trying to think of. 
Black Lips came later. There was like another oh Streets? Was he one of the first Streets was early, yeah, yeah. Streets was that was the that was like what really helped them out. And that Block was, Party then was shortly. Block Party, uh Death from Above, nineteen seventy nine. Um also did really well. We uh Oh also I forgot T V on the radio was a band that was also we would play with a lot that was around. Who I went back and re-listened to, and they are fucking unbelievable. They're great, and they were so fun live. And we it was the first band we toured with, Panthers toured with, where it was just like they were like adults that were just like artists, and it was not no one was like getting fucked up or acting yeah. insane. It was just like nice, you know. <laughs> we did that. To, we've done the the big joke was if you wanted to get famous, go on tour with us, and because we would be headlining, and then we did multiple tours where we had to switch places with people. Like TV <laughs> on the radio, we did a tour with them. And it was right before the Young Liar, whatever the first EP was, Young Liars, I think. Yeah. And it was getting clear that people were like obsessed with them. They were playing before us. And then the record came out and it was like the day the record came out, This, they started playing and this woman ripped her shirt open and had Young Liars tattooed across her chest. Wow. And I was like, I think <laughs> it's time. <laughs> We switched. David Bowie called them on while we were on the road. Oh, I thought he said David Bowie opened for you one time. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, David Bowie. Yeah. And then uh, we did the same thing with Death from Above. We we toured with them, and they opened up for us, and had to do the old switcheroo halfway through. Um, yeah. I would have kept holding on. I'd be like, you know what? Let them open. It was it was miserable that we uh, yeah, we switched. We the uh, we've had the same thing. Yeah. Kurt Vi- we took Kurt Vile out on tour. It's been the gallows play with those. Like, yeah, but I'll... halfway through, did you just have to switch? No, we didn't have no. to. Switch. No, no, we didn't have to do that. <laughs> that's no. different. That's a different. <laughs> that definitely... That's a different energy. <laughs> but I think it also speaks to the energy of the time. Yeah, you know, where like, like it could over. It was happening overnight for bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely. It was definitely exciting. I mean, we, the Mike Simonetti who ran this label called Trouble Man, he was trying to put out an Orchid record, and we we're like, well, we're kind of done. Um, we had it was him and Eric asked us to do a record too. Oregon. Whoa, yeah, that would have been they they like obviously get back involved every few years like yeah. the municipal waste thing and toxic yeah. holocaust and stuff like that. But anytime they kind of like come back to the scene for a second, it's always fascinating to me. Yeah, they they had a. I mean, I was of course like maybe we should do this. Yeah, and Will was like they have a really bad reputation. They don't deal well with. Like we have a good thing going with Kent. And yeah, he was right. Yeah, um, but anyway, so so Orchid was kind of done, and then Mike was like, "Well, whatever this next thing you're doing is, I'll put it out." So we did Panthers, and then he was like, "I'll do an LP," and then we it was so rushed, like we, but it was so exciting. Like everyone was kind of like looking, f- like it felt like people were like excited to come see us, and mm-hmm. like you know, there's a lot, and excited about the record, and then of course our record came out. <laughs> The first one, it was not super well received. We had the lowest score in Pitchfork for many years. We had a point three, I believe, or point seven. Whoa! Band, they gave some band. Like... They gave. I think that what trumped it was there was like the review was just like a it was a monkey peeing in its mouth. Who yeah, got that one? I don't though. remember. Anyway. But that knocked us off though. And also, it came out right after nine eleven, and the first like literally came out like. Uh, right after 9-11 and the first line of the first song is we're not a band we're a cabal of terrorists oh yeah that would have been so it didn't wasn't great timing um you must have been in new york during 9-11 yes yeah i just john i was talking to john brandon i didn't he played a show they played a show like two days later like right downtown 
Yeah. Like right near where it happened. We had a show that day. We had a show booked on 9-11. And this is how dumb I was, was I like walked to the venue to see if it was still on. Because I was like, I was like, who knows? <laughs> it's, it's People need entertainment. It's hardcore. It's a hardcore show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was canceled, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine that would have been probably what would have happened, but it wouldn't have surprised me if it hadn't gone on. I know, it wouldn't have been that shocking. Hardcore is one of those places. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. What about uh, when Andrew WK came to town? Like, did you know Cathode? Like, you must have seen that from the start. Uh, he was on Trouble Man, wasn't he? I don't know if Cathode was. I mean, was... I, Andrew WK's first or one of his early 12 inches, I thought was on. Maybe. Some... So he was part of that. He was kind of part of that airy weapons world, which we also. we who I love those guys. And we did a tour with those guys as well. Um, and, uh, but I didn't really know. I, I met him once. Maybe I've never seen him live. Um, but those first 12 inches were definitely kind of like a mythical thing in New York. People were really, it was like, it was kind of also in that same world as Fisher Spooner. It was almost like, um, performance, that electric class. performance art. Elect- yeah. Well, electric class was a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah, this this era is like where I'm just becoming cognizant to like kind of worlds outside of punk and hardcore. Yeah. And I remember at the time just being like, oh, wow. But now, you you know, years later, you realize like how many of these people were out of the exact same scene. Totally. Yeah, it was a lot of hardcore. And man, there was a lot of crossover. We played with a lot of those bands. Yeah, you guys were really, I'm trying to think who you would have fit better on a tour with than these bands. Because it just seems like there's always mismatches with Panthers. Yeah, and also with Panthers, it was like we put out the first record. It wasn't critically well received, but it was you know we were doing fine. That was early for Pitchfork too, right? Like that would it was very like yeah, was very two early. one. Yeah, and if you read the review, he specifically is very upset with me. I don't know. <laughs> Must be an Orchid fan. I, mean, I doubt. I don't know. I have no idea. It doesn't Orchid does not come up in the review, but. Um, he goes but, after you personally. Yeah, he really just he just does not like me. That's and the then, thing. Any we get a, a review on Pitchfork, that there's always like a shot at me, like them. it's the weirdest thing. <laughs> it's always like the same. Yeah, gets it. yeah. Um, I was talking to Stephen Page, and he said that when bare, bare naked ladies were happening, they could never get over because the British music press hated them. Yeah, and they always called them the Fat House Martins. He's like, I was a fat guy. It was 100 percent directed at me. No, listen, I was on when I was on tour with LCD Sound System. We were they were playing a show. I can't remember where we were, we, but during the day we went to the mall of America and they had one of their kind of like village voicey papers and the cover was a drawing of James. And it was like, uh, an interview with James Yeah. to promote the show. So I grabbed one and we went in the car and I'm, I'm reading it in the bus. And the first line is, uh, the unlikely king of dance punk. And I was like, what's unlikely. And he goes, they mean I'm fat. <laughs> and then, the, <laughs> and the next line was like, he's like, comes out schlubby in a flannel shirt like he doesn't care you know but it's like it's a good article like they're complimenting but they're still shitting you know no i think people that are like not even fat like if you're, oh, I know. If you're like anything not skinny yeah, yeah. as a lead singer of a band yeah it becomes it's the a, thing it's a thing yeah it, it is a thing so we anyway so we put out that first record it wasn't totally criti- critically well received but we were still doing fine uh we got we then we put out an EP on Dimmock, Steve's label, and that did well. Pitchfork gave it best new music. Um, and then that's kind of on the heels of that. We got signed device, but as is how my brain works, you know, I was like, well, we're, we did that. So now we're going to do now the next record. I'm into prog rock now. So that's what this record is like, you know, it was, and then vice was like, well, what are you guys doing? You know, <laughs> And it was because I've never, like, again, I've just really never 
been career-minded about music. It just never occurs to me that I should be like thoughtful about what like people might not want this. You should do something else. But then it's honest, right? Like, because otherwise you end up becoming like there are people there too. I've, sure. Well, I hit this point. I realized this the other day. I was watching. I think I was watching Ceremony actually, and I'm yeah. like, God, they're fucking amazing live. Like every single person yeah. here is doing what they're supposed to on stage. And I thought about that in relationship to fucked up. And I'm like, we're just doing what we have to do to survive on stage. Like we don't know any of the machinations to make this good. <laughs> like we're just like here, like this is what we're doing. Like yeah. maybe you like it, maybe you don't. But like, I was just like, Oh shit. Like there's like an, an honesty to not understanding what you're doing and just doing no. what you want to do over what you should be doing. For sure. And also I think it just comes from a world like we, you know, we'd never been signed to a label. Like it never occurred to us that there's expectations of record sales or anything like that. So it was just like, well, now we like, uh, now we're listening to like Tucky Buzzard records or whatever. Now that's what this record's going to sound like. And then we, you know, and the label was a little bit like, well, you know, these songs are all eight minutes long. It's not great. You know, <laughs> And they're like, well, you know, this is what it is. And then they put it out and then they're like, we're going to do another one, but you have to submit demos and, you know, it's, it was a lower budget. <laughs> and then we're like, well, now we're into Stoner Rock. And then we did like the, the, the last record, which is when we did the High and Fire tour. Yeah. So it was always just like, we never really stuck with a thing. We were kind of just did whatever our fancies took us at the moment. What also made, because also the, you know, Vice, you know, I was never signed directly to the label, but being around at the time, it was kind of figuring out what it, what it was to be a label. Yeah, like. and I think they I think they wanted to have the mentality of being like a punk rock label and not really telling people what, what to do, do yeah. or anything. And then as time went on, and it was they were having some struggles here and there. They were a little bit wanted to be a little bit more hands on. <laughs> yeah, and like and it's it turned and I think the other thing was like, and this is probably why it wouldn't work for fucked up like to be on Vice and to be an artist that really finds success. You've got to say yes to everything. Yeah, because they will come at you with some ideas that are terrible, but they will probably make it uh, you a better artist and or not a more successful artist, I guess. Yeah, and I think being punk bands or being from that, you're never going to say yes to everything. That's exactly right. Um, like we didn't have a manager ever. We had a manager the I think the last couple years of the band maybe, but we never. It was always just us dealing with the label. Like we just didn't do it the way. We were never smart about it. We you know. We didn't like PR stuff. We didn't like, you know, we got asked to do a tour that was sponsored by Philip Morris and we said no. Yeah. Yeah. You know, shit like that. Yeah. Like stuff that like, you know, some artists that came later on that label would have no problem saying no. yes Well, to. now it's like, there's no such thing as selling out. It's like, yeah, it's it doesn't weird. exist. Yeah. It's like all this shit that used to get like held over your head forever. Now people are like, do it, go for it. No. And everyone's like psyched. Yeah. 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 That, 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 that was a thing like you having success meant you were horrible back in the day. Yeah. And so. it's still, yeah, it's, it's the weird thing is it's not just in punk that that's happened. It's like, you remember how you'd get those tapes, um, of like Japanese commercials and you'd see like all the famous American celebrities. Yeah. And now they'll do it here. They'll do it here. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. no, yeah. you know, there's no reason for Quentin Tarantino to go over there to hawk coffee. Yeah. 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 Right here. George Clooney doing a, an espresso ad. Yeah. George Clooney does espresso yeah. ads and stuff like that. Yeah. It's very different. And I mean, I think, and a big part of it is definitely how the marketplace works or whatever that, you know, you have to get your music heard any way possible. Labels don't really do anything anymore, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's just, it's very different. 
but we even then we just didn't we didn't know how to <laughs> play the game at all when also the game was being invented then you know like there was also so much weird soft money that started yeah. coming around like i think it started more after you guys had stopped touring as much but like you know like the uh, red bull the red bull having money to give bands yeah. and, and scion yeah. with their money to get bands and there just felt like a lot of companies that were just like yeah oh you're doing something interesting here <laughs> Dude, yeah. here's money. i think the closest we got to that was we got taco bell bucks so when we were on tour we could uh, get yeah, we, free taco bell that was always my dream really well yeah. it was a nightmare jeff garlock was so cheap he were refused even if we were like like we're sick of taco bell we have to go somewhere else he's like he's like all right you guys do what you want take me to taco bell <laughs> nuts <laughs> you don't need to talk about <laughs> full tour. I heard Chipotle also used to have a deal like that where you go on. Yeah, well, that was after. I mean, I don't know. That was after us. But yeah, I mean, even with when we, you know, we did the thing with with Vice, and they were like, "We'll pay for your practice space. We'll get you a van. We'll get you gear." Like there was, and I was like, "What?" You know? Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. But we also, and, but in that same mindset, I I felt no obligation towards them to do anything that would help them. <laughs> Yeah. It was, it, like, I look, I can't wait till someone does a Vice documentary or a Vice. <sighs> It'll book. never happen. I just feel like there's, it'll be mired in lawsuits because all the be, main players are. It, it would be insane. It would be. Because it would be so many stories. Like, it would have to be, like, a TV movie series. Because, like, yeah. there's the Montreal years. Yeah. Then there are the lean New York years. Yeah. And then there are the successful New York years. Yeah. And then... I mean, when we started, when we first got signed to Vice, we were under their, we were at a practice space under their office. It was on South 4th uh, in Williamsburg. And there, there was prostitutes walking around. And, like, people shoot at, like, this is, like, now where the Whole Foods is. Yeah. Um, oh, so, how it changed that city. Like, I think the Vice impact on Brooklyn is... Massive, yeah. Massive, massive. yeah. Yeah, it's massive. I remember there was a, they had a Vice party at this place called, I think it was called Black and Red or some Williamsburg bar. And Sarush was DJing, and we had just basically agreed to be on the label we were all there and everyone's like and they were playing our first record like djing you know and uh um shane <laughs> came over to me and he's like are you ready to be famous and i was like yes and he's like what's the name of your band again <laughs> and i was like we're in good hands this is yeah <laughs> Yeah, it was it was Sarush who was like like our guy. Basically. Well, and he's also like, he's always been to me been the music guy who loves music. Yeah, he was the one. He was he was he was like the overseer of the label. And then there was um, two other people: Adam Shore, Jamie, and Jamie Farkas. Who yeah, are the uh, the main people. That oh. was like the the main. That was there wasn't much more than that. I was kind of starstruck the first time I met Adam Shore <laughs> because of Dig. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. Adam's a wonderful. That's <laughs> the best, but I mean because of Dig and his part in Dig. Yeah, and then that's right. Yeah, yeah, it was in Dig. Yeah, that's right. That's oh, right. It's like, oh my god, yeah, the, that's right. The, the Brian Jonestown stuff. He's so funny because he was a guy that we always used to give a hard time because he's just so he has that kind of personality that you want to raz. And I went in once and and Sarush showed me a letter that was sent to uh, Adam and they got his name wrong. They wrote Adam Short. <laughs> And Adam is short. And then I remember being like, I can't believe we didn't think of it. <laughs> it was right there. Uh, yeah, but they, I liked Jamie and Adam a lot. And Sirish. I thought they were all really nice. Oh, it was amazing. Those periods of like time where we were all hanging out 
and uh, playing shows or just yeah. you know on weird festivals together. Those are my favorite times. You know. Yeah, it was fun. It was definitely fun. I mean, it felt like it wouldn't end in some weird way. Yeah. It was just was like everybody was doing something, and that's when even South by was like hadn't quite crested the. Uh, it was still a little bit crazy yeah. and the after parties and like you guys playing on the bridge that one time yeah. at like two in the morning. Like that stuff was so cool. It was before, like, I think like, the thing, once again, this is not a thing that I think either of us want to hang our hats on, but like the, the, the corporate entry yeah. into underground music, like that's when that era really kind of starts. And, and now it obviously yeah, yeah. because of Spotify, yeah. it's necessitated and everyone's corporately involved. But like South by Southwest at that time, there was no sponsorship or it might be like, you know, like uh, in case. Doing... Yeah, I remember that band Chick Chick Chick. Yeah, um, those guys. Orchid actually used to play with those guys. They played at my loft in Brooklyn. I love, I love all. I'm still friends with those guys. But I remember it was like after Panthers was kind of done, or we maybe we were. I think I was at South by maybe with Cheeseburger or something. But they had to play a show, and it was a Doritos showcase, and they had to play it like it was like the stage set. It was like a giant Doritos vending machine. The vending Doritos vending machine. You know, I bring, that, I bring it up all the time. They got and they got a giant bag of Doritos, <laughs> brought it back to their room with them, and I just remember being like, "This fucking sucks." Like they had like that level of like having to play the Doritos stage, or that was the joke I always made. Like when we played the Oshiega Festival. I always said we were on the Snickers stage because it was like some shit stage on the side of it. We were on like the most, and anytime Fucked Up has played Oshiega, we've still played that stage. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, come on. Just yeah. take us in a terrible <laughs> slot now on one of the better stages. Like, yeah, put us on at 1.30 in the I afternoon. I still want to headline though, yeah. the stage that I've started on. <laughs> yeah. That was awesome, too, because I got you to do, uh, to rekindle the, uh, the space shit's uh, Tricky Woo beef. Yes, that's right. Unbeknownst to me. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a Tricky Woo documentary coming out. Can't wait. It's going to be did you, were you into that Man's Ruins stuff? Any of the Man's Ruins records? Yeah. Later on, you guys start doing the Stoner Rock stuff a little more. Yeah, I know. I loved loved Man's Ruin. Um, I mean, that was the first High on Fire record is on Man's Ruin. Yeah. Uh, and and that was an Orchid staple. We would, when we would warm up, kind of like sound check, even though we're just on the floor with no <laughs> PA or anything, but we would play um, 10,000 Years, the opening to 10,000 Years. Oh, really? That's how we would kind of get levels. Yeah. We were obsessed with that record. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff was awesome. Like that great. period of, of stuff. Do you remember that being Green Machine? Yeah. Oh, fucking... We were, Orchid, we, I was always really into stoner stuff and Orchid was, that was like big time on rotation in the van. We would listen to stoner rock a lot, sleep and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And Nuth Crush. Love Nuth Crush. You know, their uh, Asbestos Death, Yeah. the pre-sleep band, yeah. uh, also featured the original guitar player from Nuth Crush. Yeah, you mentioned this to me and I was trying to figure out who... Because I guess the only two people I know from Nuth Grush that I can name are Gary, the bass player singer, and then the drummer, who is his wife, I believe. But she was, I, we saw her play, when we played that show where we, I told you about earlier, where we took all the photos for yeah. the record, she broke 15 drumsticks because she was such an animal on the drum. Like, Whoa. they were so good. And they offered us a place to stay. And I hate to do this to poor Brad Wallace, her old bass player, and blow up his spot. But everybody in the band was straight edge and Orchid was straight edge at the time. And they're like, yeah, come stay with us. And then Brad was like, I don't know. I think they smoke marijuana. <laughs> so we didn't go over there. 
We didn't stay with Newthgrush because he was afraid of weed. You wouldn't even go around the weed. But I was, I was like, I'll deal with it. I love Newthgrush. Yeah. Band fucking rips. They are, uh, you know, they're, there's like so many bands from that time period, like where you go back. I guess it's like the Nuggets era. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I can't imagine someone doing this. But hopefully one day someone does like a Pebbles or Nuggets with all these sort of records. Well, you know, like uh, another big one for working like amongst the band members was Dystopia. Yes. We were huge Dystopia fans. And I don't know if you've ever met those guys or seen those guys live. Have we you? opened for them. Okay. In my old band. They're 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 like no joke. No guys. joke. They're, they live the life. They live the life. And we played a, I don't know, I think it was just a, like two shows on the East Coast with them. We played this place in Worcester called The Space, which we played many times. And uh, Legendary. legendary, Pretty legendary, legendary yeah. yeah. And uh, they were, I was so like psyched to be playing with them. And uh, we were asked to do the show. And I, my mind, we were asked by Dystopia yeah. to do the show. <laughs> so they get on stage and like, we just want to thank Orchard for opening up. <laughs> I was like, yes, yes. No, we, I mean, uh, we were, we were definitely that whole slap of ham world. That was all like very big for the whole Orchid band. It's funny because uh, Tony Molina, are you, do yeah. you know Tony Molina? Yeah. Great guy. But he hit me up one day and he was like, I want to talk to you about the gentrification of dystopia and how we're seeing like dystopia get, you know, like getting gentrified now and it's no longer like, is that a thing? Well, and I'm like, I'm like, is it a thing? And then my brother sent me a text message being like, I just dropped my kids off at school and there's a 10 year old wearing a dystopia shirt. What? Yeah, completely <laughs> unconnected from the thing. And I'm like, what? He's like, I went up the, and talked to the kid and the kid's like, yeah, I'm super into crust. Yeah. My human equals garbage. That's yeah, my... my parents got me into it. So dystopia is one of the bands I'm into. And Ma- it... what was the guy? Maus. Wasn't that his name from? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were like. That was also the thing back then. Like, you'd hear about these bands, and these legends would just loom so large. Yeah. So then when you finally saw the band, it would be like, you'd have all this baggage with them. Yeah. It, and some of it was right on. I mean, Dystopia, those guys were, I was told that they were no joke. They were no joke. They were also awesome. Yeah. Suppression was like that. They were like, these guys are fucked up, dudes. And they were, but they were also awesome. Grief. Grief. Terrifying. Were they? Yes. I fucking love that. I mean, me too. Me too. I mean, it was, and I Hate God was another one that was like, uh, living the life and, 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 you know, had this like aura around them that were, it was a little scary for a bunch of little straight edge. I, there was like the first, there was an I Hate God integrity tour. (laughs) Was there really? Someone told me that once. I was, but maybe I'm just imagining. That would have been so sick. It's like the dream tour. Yeah. That would be so sick. I'm not sure how it would go over with people. I mean, that I would love that tour. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, I don't even know, even, I don't know if you want to include this, but I saw when I was in Panthers and we played South by Southwest, there uh, there was a side project of I Hate God that played called Outlaw Order. Yes. Do you know them? Yeah, I love, I love that single. So, and you know why that band existed? Because like one of the guys was in jail or yeah. something, right? So they yeah. did this Outlaw Order. And it's basically everybody but one dude. So they played this showcase at South by, this tiny little space. And this is to go back to like the whole strokes and all that, that, that ascendance of that world. They come out and it's just massive feedback. So loud. Mike, the singer, Mike starts just bashing his head with the uh, mic stand. He's bleeding, you know, and they start playing and it's fucking so sick. It's like, it's me. I think me and Jeff Garlock were there. Maybe Justin was there too. And we're just like, this is awesome. And uh, after the first song, the drummer pukes in his lap. (laughs) And then he's like, give me the microphone. 
<laughs> he takes the mic and he goes, he goes, if I was in the strokes, I'd change my pants, but I'm not. <laughs> and then he just like clicks into the next show. I remember just being like, if you're in any, I mean, this, it's not the stroke. You should change your pants. <laughs> yeah, probably change your pants. <laughs> For everyone else's sake. Even. Like it's snobby to have non-puke pants on. Uh, That's a New York hipster shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That, band, that was that was a very memorable show. They were very good. Do you remember when we saw Oxbow at South by Southwest? Yeah, that's a scary band too. That was a Fuck, scary band. Yeah, I like that band. You guys were like, <laughs> you and Jeff were like, you're not going to believe what it's like live. Like, what could he do? And then he's doing the dick punching thing. Yeah, and it was just like, oh, this lives up to all the hype. No, he was great, and I think they, I think Vice tried to do something with them. Well, he used to write for Vice. That's he, right. He did all like Eugene. Is that his Eugene? Name? Yeah, yeah, he wrote a book. I he's a very, he he's a very interesting dude. Very interesting. He played in that band Whipping Boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going back in the day, yeah. in San Francisco and stuff too. Yeah, Oxbow was sick. That was yeah. I saw a lot of good. I saw a lot of good stuff at South by back in the day. Yeah, it was weird that period. I was also thinking, like, the time we played Coachella, like, Throbbing Crystal headlined that stage. Like, Wild. It's very weird, like, that moment where, you know, underground culture was kind of bubbling up and people didn't really know yeah. what was what. So they are just like, oh, this thing, this thing, let's put yeah. it all together. Yeah, and, like, I feel like heavy stuff had a real moment for a while. And, you know, like, that the, when I first met you, I think the, the it was, like, Boris, Melvin's. Yeah. Us. Playing at the uh, Stubs, like the outdoor. The big outdoor Stubs. Like, yeah, like where like the New York Dolls played and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And that was pretty cool. And Chromio. And Chrome. Did Chromio play the show Chrome, too? Chromio played another show that yeah. weekend. Chromio. Love those guys. <laughs> I love this. I yeah. had the best time. Yeah, I know. This was great. And any time... this wasn't too off the... Uh... No, dude, this has been amazing. <laughs> this is amazing. And there's so much stuff we didn't... Actually, let me just do a quick proof for... I got everything I wanted to get on my, my little list of stuff. So I got okay, I got good. it all, all, all right. to take care of. Great. So, uh, but anytime you want to come back on. I live here now, so I'm going to do it whenever. We should do a spinoff podcast and marry our two podcasts. I'm down. We should honestly do, we should just do one about Connecticut hardcore. I've, I would feel like just a <laughs> tourist in there. I would be like, it'd be like the guy who doesn't know anything about it. Does I don't know my New Haven from my Danbury. Listen, you own a follow through jacket i know i, so I gave it away pretty, oh okay. i had to give it i gave it to someone who was still straight edge oh. and had played some shows with follow through so i, I did thought. that with my ex watch i had to give it to jeff garlock when i broke edge which now i'm like why the fuck did i do yeah that? i know that's <laughs> someone gave me their xbox when they broke straight edge too <laughs> so dumb i'm like oh no but i do have a i do have a disproportionate number of follow through records you yeah. do you have too many i do yeah. have a lot so yeah if you need someone to do a connecticut podcast uh i'm, I'm down to help and be okay. the sidecar guy yeah <laughs> uh but yeah it's so awesome that you're here oh it was really fun thank you jason for coming on the show and you heard right there jason and i we, we're not, we might have a spinoff podcast in the works or something uh in the meantime though check out 24-hour video podcast and check out all the that jason does over at jason that's j-a-y-s-o-n green.com and uh and yeah i can't wait to do more all right coming up in a few short days on this podcast a, a musician who i'm a huge fan of and someone who is really making a huge mark on music right now uh, this is a fantastic conversation and uh, some incredible stories on this one as well. 
Bartiz Strange will be on the podcast. Bartiz has just put out a fantastic new album and really is one of those artists that kind of broke out during the pandemic and is now finally able to really go out there and, and, and sort of take over the world and stuff. And once again, all comes back to punk. <laughs> That's why I love this thing. And we talk about some cool punk stuff on that show. Uh, that'll be coming up, uh, gosh, a few short days, hopefully. All right, that is it for me. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and races and religions. And my God, just knock all that fascist bullshit out. Uh, these are not political issues. These are basic human rights things. So if there's organizations that are doing things in this world that you think are going to affect positive change, get involved, volunteer time, volunteer resources. If you have them, whatever you can do, try and make this world a little bit better. You know, it'll make you feel a little bit better. Speaking of feeling better, try meditating. I know a lot of people do not, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know if a lot of people don't believe in it. I certainly didn't believe in it. And then I came to it and now I've tried it. And my gosh, I believe in it now. Uh, there's apps you can try it with. There's YouTube videos. Just just try it a couple of times. Speaking about trying something, try and make your own culture. Just start a band, start a label, start a fanzine, start a podcast, start whatever you need to do. Maybe just draw a picture for yourself. Who knows? Be creative. It also can help mental health stuff. Speaking of helping people, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them anymore and they can help someone. They can help someone. And that is it for me. Thank you very much for listening and I will be back on the next episode. Uh, and uh, stay safe. <laughs>